John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1158.DE0413, certificate number 51403, the sight and sound pole. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. Now, in any of your various roles, mm-hmm. John, as a cultural commentator or a performer or a local expert, whatever. Sex advice columnist. Eminence Grease. Basketball, basketball trick shooter. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say uh, color commentary. Yeah, yeah ba- basketball trick shooter. Ba- basketball waxer. Um, have you ever been asked to provide a top 10 list oh, of God. any kind? Yes, all the time. Is that right? Yes. Like end of year kind of stuff? Or Absolutely. What's the... What what are some examples, and what do you think about this whole ritual? Well, it still happens now, except now people want my playlists. Mm. But back in the 2000s and 2010s, yeah, it's a common way of trying to interact with a with a musician or somebody that you that you want to talk to or admire. Oh, this is just fan correspondence. No, nobody wants to publish it, or they no. Do? It ends up being reporters who are trying to fill column inches, yeah. and they're thinking, oh, you know, what, what should I do? Oh, I should ask. 10 indie rock artists to name their top 10 either records of the year or top 10 most influential records on them or et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's always a, there's always a tag, a hook, and I'm terrible at making top 10 lists. I, well, I assumed you would not be enthusiastic about it I'm at not. a bare minimum. Like there, you know, we know from the movie, the book in the movie High Fidelity that there is this in a lot of these fandom circles, there's a lot of this culture of let's do this as a parlor game. What are our, yeah. what are your top five, this top 10 songs that have whistling top 10 albums of the eighties, whatever. We used to play the game on tour. Um, we would take turns DJing in the van mm-hmm. on the many, many long hours across the world. That's how you travel around the world across it. You're right. Don't go through it. No, it's too hot. You go across the world, but each of us would take, you know, the, the early days of having an iPod and, and compose a playlist as you went with a theme, right? Oh, I'm going to do, let's see. And, you know, and try and guess the theme, but it, it's a fun discipline to sit and say, oh, I'm going to do all show all songs that are in the third person or all songs that are about. It's a new axis to think about art on. Yeah. But I'm not good at it. 
I guess I can get into it. Well, you're never you're not a fanish person in general. You you I think you have some built-in scorn at kind of identifying yourself with the things you like. And so the glee that people take in fighting over whether something is the eighth or ninth best, whatever, seems like you would actively poo-poo it. Yeah, I do. Am I right? Go ahead and poo-poo it. Poo. I mean, this was all, there, there are so many versions of this. There are the people that will sit for hours and argue about how they organize their vinyl. Like <laughs> That's also a high fidelity plot point. Yeah, how is it organized? And I, I was just like, there, I couldn't, first of all, it's not. My vinyl isn't organized at all. It all goes in just like, we. But second, well, who cares? But there are also people that have, their bookshelf is arranged by color. You know, or those people, do you remember where people were were putting their books in spine in? Uh, yeah, I actually, yeah. I well, know somebody who does this. And, and, you know, it's cute Alarming. and stuff, but it has nothing to do with books. Anyway, you're right. It's the, it's the lack of fan. Um, I don't have that impulse. And so whenever I would get asked, can you do this? I would always decline. And then I would have my publicist or other publicists say, you know, it's just an opportunity to get your name in a magazine. Right. Don't decline. It's not some dignity issue. Just make up a thing. But it, they are trying to get you to write their thing for free. Right. Here, uh, I don't want to write a listicle. You write a listicle. I will still get paid for the listicle. And the thing is, I'm happy to write a thousand words for them, but just not. don't make me do that dumb thing. But is, is any of it on a basis of like, oh, it's like picking my children. I couldn't possibly, or is this just no. like my brain doesn't work this way? No, or, I have zero. I think a lot of it is that you take no pleasure from it. And these pe- the world is full of people who take a specific, and I am very far over on the other end of the spectrum, oh. take a certain kind of nerdy completist's pleasure. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's like a warm bath to be like, ah, you know, what were the best, um, you know, if I did have to order the Beatles albums by quality of first song, right. or if I, you know, what are the best movies that change from black and white to color halfway through? Oh boy, you know, like what a thrill. And uh, you are maybe lucky to be missing the gene of just enjoying swimming and stuff like that. Every once in a while, I'll get a wild hair. I did it the other day where I was like, you know what? The, the rock music of the 1980s owes a lot to the band Foreigner. And we never talk about foreigner, for you know. And I'm not going to argue. We on omnibus, or well, anybody. I mean, the rock music. I think critic, we should talk more about foreigner. Yeah, the critical consensus does does almost never include foreigner, but you cannot have really any of the the um, the I don't know sort of boomer middle aged guy rock you know muscular sounding keyboard rock of 1985 without listening to foreigner four from 1981 and seeing that the la- the first four foreigner records have all the dna of everything that came after until metallica's first record which has nothing to do with foreigner and takes nothing from it but you know foreigner they did it. foreigner plays this incredible this influential role in the sound and vibe of the sort of Eddie Money mainstream and and actually Bruce Springsteen and John Cougar, all that stuff, you know, because Foreigner was British, but mm-hmm. they're making this real kind of American guitar, but not... Hence the name. It's not... <laughs> right. <laughs> the guitar isn't going to hurt your feelings, but it's tough enough that, you know, that you can wear blue jeans and feel good about it. So 
I will do that every once in a while. Like, I've got a thesis. But that seems, that's very much like, I've got a, I've got a controversial, possibly inflammatory historical appreciation here. And it might be about rock or it might be about uh, the Kaiser, right? Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, I, I'm not invested in Foreigner 4. No. I'm not trying to argue that I, you know. That, and on some level, you might like the contrarianist nature yeah. of the position. Or just, this isn't something that we've been thinking about. Why don't we think about this for a second? But this, this to me is something a little bit different, which is uh, different. a different a different kind of phase that we've moved into in terms of critical discourse and consensus, which is, let's see your lists. Let's see everybody's preferences. Oh, let's fight over the and, and that phrase. Let's see your lists. I've actually heard. I've and, actually heard that. Like, and you're a person without a list. Yeah, I don't have one. I have a hard time assembling a list. I feel. I always feel like you have I, so many lists. Well, no. It's just more like there's some level of well, I'm going to leave stuff off of the list. But it's also like, do I trust myself? Does this movie that I saw that really impressed me the first time I saw it is that as good as a movie that the fourth time really reveals itself? The, the same thing for the. The song that's a slow burner or a grower. What is your top French new wave film? Exactly. Name it. Eh, last year at Marion Bad. Okay. But see, you know, you but, but on a different day, I might say Breathless. You know, I might have, I might have different answers. We're going to get letters <laughs> in French. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's people who would not even have to think because yeah. because the, part of their brand is just I know what my favorite movie of 1987 was. And what's your favorite movie in 1987? Oh, you know, the funny thing is one of my stories when I was on Jeopardy for the first time was that I had a web page where I listed my 2000 favorite movies in order. And it was kind of true because I had, I was going through, uh, by year and I was saying, have I seen 10 movies from 1931? Hey, I have, wow. let's put them in order. And so cool. I had, you know, and this is something we do in real time, like, you know, not we, not you, but you know. A, a, a dedicated moviegoer would, at the end of the year, think back, like, what were my favorite movies of 2022? Did I like Top Gun Maverick more than I liked Tar or Everything Everywhere All at Once? Or you would never think this no, way. it's but, a completely foreign impulse to mm -hmm. me. And I'm just saying, you can see in my face, I'm like, why would you? But some people, and there's really nothing about the art that requires it. Obviously, the year boundaries are completely arbitrary. But something about that kind of rigor and just a chance to revisit the past and reassess our opinions appeals to us. For some reason. Did you know I've been to Marion Bad? Last year? No. Yeah, I think I met you there last year. Or was it the year before? No, it was neither of those times. It was several years ago on a little trip I took. So the, the Across the world. <laughs> uh, you did not bore through Europe like no, the Mole Man. It's, uh, the Czech name is Marionsky Lozny. And I don't know if that appears in the film because I've never seen it. The film is kind of an... Uh, it's a version of an avant-garde French novel in which... Uh, one uh, a nameless pair of people meet at this resort and one is convinced they've met before and the other is convinced they haven't oh and really it turns out not to matter because oh. this is not a traditional plot or psychology development yes exactly marionsky lasny is a beautiful spa and uh and a strange very strange place uh, i was uh, that's it. i should it. i want to visit it because i you know the movie and the book are famously kind of strange and beautiful and unearthly and i wonder if that's inspired by the real place or if it's just i always just assumed it was some arbitrary because i think in the movie it's just kind of used as a placeholder like was it Marienbad or was it friedrichsbad or yeah there are two big spa towns uh over in western czech republic and uh, and Mariansky Lazny is the smaller of the two. I don't think I could have even told you that it's in modern Czech Republic boundaries. Yeah, and but the thing is, it's in Western Czech Republic, which was the um, Sudetenland mm -hmm. 
which was formerly populated largely by Germans, which is why well, it's called Marion. I don't think you should really be supporting that claim. You know what? It hasn't aged well to say, <laughs> that, the, to say that the Germans should move into their ancestral Sudetenland. No, I don't believe they should, but I do, <laughs> think, it's, I do think it's not contestable that it was a lot of Germans living there. It's that, been known to happen. Yeah. I don't want to. I'm not like some kind of revisionist. But as a result of, you know, having this kind of list, I, and I had put it on kind of a rudimentary GeoCities type website, and when I was struggling for something interesting to say about myself to Alex Trebek, I was like, oh, I'll be a movie nerd today. And people were like, I want to see Ken. Suddenly, you know, I'm getting emails every day. Hey, where's that page that had your list of of all your 2,000 favorite movies organized by year? Yeah, on your 70th show, I imagine you and Alex had really run out of anecdotes. On my seventh show, I'd run out of <laughs> anecdotes. It was, it was a pretty bleak scene. You've heard this show. Yeah. Well, what you started to do was just write your name in, uh, like, with weird art, and that was something to talk about, he would, right? He would usually just go off card. He'd be like, Ken, I want to ask you something. And he looks at the five boring stories on my card and looks up and says, what are your, you know... You ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> do you like Roman gladiator movies? Uh, so I am very much on the other end of the spectrum where I'm, you know, I have this urge, to, you know, the enjoyment of cataloging favorites of various kinds and genres is like very real to me on it, but I really can't defend it. But, but you've really I, tempered that in your and my relationship. It almost never comes up that you like start fanboying out and then check yourself. Like, you know that you're not going to get that from me. So you never bring it up. I feel like it's a private pursuit. Oh, like if I'm with somebody else who enjoys it, then it can become a social pursuit. Like, like if you wanted to argue with me about Godard and Truffaut, you know, Hey, that's, that's fun. I don't, but clearly you don't. And you, you give that off. You emanate, do not ask me. Do not ask me to rate the Radiohead albums in order. You know, because people will. And it'll wait. Be, they had more than one album. <laughs> what? <laughs> now I have a tie at fourth place, and this is going to be controversial. There's there's a million podcasts that do this. Yeah, sure. Um, but of all the things that I kind of hate about modern criticism, this is one that I feel is. Can pretty, you make a list of the top ten things you hate about modern criticism? Number ten. I feel like maybe this show will become that at some point because I have you know I feel like the ways that we interact with art are deeply broken in the uh, in the <sighs> social media era. Yes. But this one to me seems pretty benign. This thing that happens every December where people start to argue about their favorite records and the critics polls come out and then the readers poll comes out and we argue about whether the critics are out of touch or the readers are uh, too dumb or Paz and Jop. Paz and Jop. So you met, since you mentioned Paz and Jop, the Village Voice has been doing this influential is it critics poll or readers poll? It's critics, right? Uh, no, maybe crit it's readers. It's critics, but it, for a long time oh, this is embarrassing. For a long time, I was one of the uh, contributors to the Paz and Jop Reader's Poll. See, why didn't you lead with this? Well, because I never knew what to do. And they would send out this exhaustive list of everything that had come oh, out. They and sent all out a things. list. Oh, huge list of like, and you need to pick, you need to rank the right. things that you loved and uh, and all these different lists. You know, what was your favorite jazz album? What was your favorite? And I was I was so overwhelmed by it. I would sit and look at this list for a long time because I was on the Grammy board too, voting for the Grammy Awards. Same thing, exhaustive list of. Do the Grammy send out screeners like the Oscars do, so you can listen to stuff for free? Well, and 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 because I was because I wrote a column for the Seattle Weekly that was in the music section, you'd get review copies. I was on this list where I would get fifty CDs a week, and all and all these emails begging me to review the latest, you know, uh, my sister's machine record or whatever. No, that never happened. But I, so I, I felt so much, I don't know, not pressure exactly, but just like 
it was like it was like people were haranguing me in a foreign language. The world is demanding my list. I was sitting in a cafe in Morocco and they were just and somebody was yelling at me and I was like, I have no idea what you're saying. I don't know. I I've only heard one Silver Sun pickup song. I cannot tell you whether that record is better than than the Inspiral Carpets record. What does better even mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, the Passing Job Polls, Robert Criscow's Village Voice Poll that he started in 1970. Um, but it's hugely influential. We were on it at one point in some way, way down it. But it, there was a sales bump? Well, the people, no, never oh. a sales bump. Even if you're, <laughs> you're, on the, you're like, Lord, no. <laughs> even if you're on the Letterman show, <laughs> you don't sell any more records. But, you know, there were high fives happening. Yeah. And I still hear all the time, like, oh, remember when... When, uh, you know, A.C. Newman was f- number 40 on the pa- Paz and Jop. And I'm like, This no. is increasingly where uh, enthusiasm for art happens. It, it, this is now the forum for how we celebrate art because this kind of is the communal space to be like, ooh, look what's up six places in the poll this year. And this is a new phenomenon. The idea of a top 10 list is quite new. I spent some time this morning going through like 19th century literary corpuses to see if you can find anybody talking about their 10 favorite anything. Is it a Wolfman Jack thing? Where did it start? Casey Kasem? I mean, I guess it starts on Mount Sinai. Oh, sure. I mean... Wait, are, were there like 11 through 15 and we just don't know about them? Yeah, there's a tie. <laughs> at 11 through 13, there's a tie, three other commandments that were cut off the list. No, I mean, 10 is obviously an obvious number for this kind of list dating back to the Decalogue and probably has something to do with our evolutionary fingers. We got those fingers. It's the fingers. But the idea that you would assemble your 10 favorite things and then argue about it with other composers, poets, writers, whatever. Prophets. Seems to be quite new. I mean, the the model we had in the... 18th and 19th centuries was more of a, it's, it's today's county fair. There's a, there's a small room full of experts or judges, and they're going to put their heads together, and then they're going to come out with a medal and stick it on the best pig. Who made the, yeah, or the best preserves. The best jam, yeah. And this is basically the model that the Pulitzers have used since 1917, that the Nobel Prizes have used since 1901, the Cannes Film Festival since 1946. A small group of uh, prestigious people like, ooh, look who's on the jury this year. Um decide and there's no there's no pretense that it's some consensus choice because it's i mean it's a by definition a small group and we know on some level that there was going to be infighting and deal making in that room but there's no second place in the nobels or the pulitzer right right? and those are not yeah so you're right those are not top 10 lists a single ribbon has been awarded by a group of experts so there was not a big hey the sample's better the more critics we get and there's no you know what's fun if we can rank these (laughs) and see the runners up and fight about them um, th- this system is, you know, it goes back at least to this, the Paris Salon, the art, ga- the famous art show in 1748, that show first had a jury that got together and said, here's the one winner. But if you want somebody making a list of their 10 favorite things, I can find the poet Charles A. Dana doing it shortly before his death in the 1890s saying, you know, just an article where he was like, as an interesting exercise, I considered the 10 short poems that every schoolboy should know, you know, and then he's like, it's Shakespeare's sonnet, this it's Milton's sonnet, this it's, right. and, uh, because it's the 1890s, he, he, you know, he ends with Tennyson and Kipling. It's um, the Harvard 10 foot shelf of books idea of what, uh, what constitutes a corpus or a, a canon. Yeah. A canon. And that's an, that's an interesting idea when it comes to some of the other art forms we'll look at here. Um, and I think that's the idea. That's about the time this idea is getting built that, you know, this is what the educated 
man, we would have said, because right. he was an awful patriarch. He would have on on his shelf. Well, it was a patriarchy. Let's not just go ahead and say it was awful. Oh, it was pretty awful. It was, you know, you think it was good fine? bad. What are the top Honestly, 10, top 10 patriarchies. patriarchies, top 10 things about any patriarchy? Uh, right. But you always start with the, you start with the Greeks Yeah, or, I mean, what, you it's don't... true. That, it's true that once you assemble a literary canon, you're well on your way to saying, what are the top hundred great books? Right. You know, you're not there yet and you're not doing it for, you wouldn't say it's fun. You're not doing it in that voice. You're not radio do- DJ voice. <laughs> well, yeah. So radio DJs are a big part of what we think of as a top 10 countdown because Gen X came up with Casey Kasem and Shadow Stevens doing this on the radio. But in fact, um, you know, Billboard's charts are never a top 10. You know, Billboard had a hot 100 starting in the 50s. They had a top, their radio show that Casey Kasem started was top 40. Top 40. Billboard's number is generally 40 and 100. And there is a predecessor. They did have the very earliest Billboard lists are, I think, just for reasons of easier computation. These are the 10 top selling sheet music things. Um, and this kind of comes out of this, the turn of the century era. There's just an explosion of it. And I don't think we can blame Charles Dana or anybody else, but suddenly Harper's and the Saturday Review are going to have like, boy, here are, what are last year's 10 best novels? We spoke to Professor whatever at Yale mm-hmm. and Professor somebody else at, at, uh, at Northwestern. And here's what they said. You start to see more of these at the end of the year. Um, so but, it's an end of the year wrap up. Is where it kind of starts. Mm, I mean, Char- not Charles Dana. Charles Dana's doing some best poems all time. And maybe right. some of these articles... Because he's on his deathbed. <laughs> he doesn't have time to look at last... <laughs> he didn't read all of his manuscripts that he got. All his- He didn't watch all his screeners from last year. But a lot of these things showing up on the Saturday Evening Post are just more like... These experts... You know, the same reason BuzzFeed does listicles. These experts say, these are the ten paintings. What do you think, reader? You know, because they realize they're going to inspire lively discussion in a parlor or around a Cracker Barrel yeah. somewhere. Um, the FBI has a top 10 list as of 1949. Oh, that I would have thought that was uh, public enemy number one was 20 years before that. I think the 10 most wanted list. I mean, maybe there is public enemy. I think you're right. I think Dillinger is public enemy number one. But just as with... There's not a public enemy number seven. Just as with the Nobel Prizes be, be getting, you know, these 10 best lists... Uh, the idea that the public would react to a top 10 and that would be something you could follow and you know track criminals out the same way you're tracking pop signals, that's a late 40s invention. And that was big when we were kids. The well, yeah, 10 most wanted list. You couldn't go to the post office without thinking about it. But I guess now it's not such a big deal. I don't even know. Do they even have it? Uh, somebody will tell us. I don't people, care enough to look. People get caught so fast now because... It's like, well, we got videotape of this guy. They're we, dummies. we got his license plate number two. <laughs> Literally in the YouTube video, he uh, you could see his phone number. Um, and then Letterman in 1985. You know, by that time, it's become enough of a staple of our conversation that you can have an ironic take on it. Like the very first top ten list has no jokes in it. The Letterman one. The Letterman one. Yeah, he just says here are ten with much fanfare. And drum rolling, it's here are 10 words that kind of sound like peas, or 10 words that almost rhyme with peas. And then he just says, meat. And there's kind of a, you know, Paul does a thing, and there's, there's kind of a muffled laugh as people yeah. gradually figure out what's happening. Yeah. But it's a take on the idea that with much aplomb, you would count down to the best of something. <laughs> the the Casey the, Kasem model. The word that most closely yeah. sounds Here's our number like one these. word that almost rhymes with peas. But, you know, more than any, you know, and we've covered Paz and Jop, and we've covered, you know, so there's been music and art and literature, 
jazz downbeat magazine starts asking critics and readers for the best jazz records in the 50s. It's happening everywhere, but nowhere more so than in the movies. Oh. Um, for whatever reason, and I would, if I was just talking out of my butt, as I am, I would say that it's some overlap of a big, well-moneyed industry um, with a promote with a you know savvy promotional wing, plus the egos of these people that lead to lots of self-congratulatory honors and award ceremonies, plus the fact that they're actually, it's a new medium, so there is a lot of artistic innovation going on, plus it's got mass popularity. Everybody has an opinion. So when you, you combine all these things, it's a perfect storm for where the top 10 list kind of appears. It was the first art form that really was, you were talking about big money, right. too. Right? Like, you could be a million seller uh, with your Bebopalula 7-inch, but it's not like the big dollars that Ben-Hur brought in. And so the top 10, you're also, it's the first time you're able to say, like, this earned $100 million. That's in itself exciting. Yeah, it is. And and it's, you know, uh, everybody young and old will have seen Ben-Hur or Broken Blossoms or whatever the big silent movie of 1920-whatever of is. Um, it's both art and it's the opiate of the masses. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, famously, the, the Oscars are an industry vote. Thousands of insiders are voting. Um, but we get into top 10 polls pretty quickly. The National Board of Review is a group that started out as a censorship board, as you can, as in implied by their name. But that kind of morphed into like, we provide a seal of artistic merit. You mm -hmm. know, like, what are the up, uplifting movies that your community should be, should be showing in its, in its movie houses? And as an arm of this, um, in 1929, they produced a top 10 list. Like, here are the top 10 most gratifying and enriching films of 1929. Um, no sexual innuendo. No strong female leads. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awful patriarchy at every, at every turn. Um, but it was, I think at this point, it was less like Catholic bishops and just a bunch of what it is today, New York City area film enthusiasts who are like... Oh, so they were well, actually the good movies. not just looking for clean movies, but really yeah. These good are movies. these are the movies of merit. Oh yeah, you know, like your women's group should have seen Hallelujah, King Vidor's best. Oh, so so film already had the imprimatur of high culture. It did. Oh, it did. Um, I think just because it was so obvious when somebody tried something like there's so much of this dreck with Keystone Cops falling down, but have you guys seen Ernst Lubitsch's The Love Parade? It's it's uh, a, a, a uplifting romance at, at par with any sonnet, you know, that this kind of thing. And the National Board of Review, you may or may not be aware, still exists today. Yes. And a bunch of film enthusiasts still turn out a top, and they do so in December. They turn out a top 10 list before the award season really kicks off. Um, do they do it with the award season in mind, hoping to influence it? Yeah, I think every, it's the same kind of thing with the Iowa caucus, where every year the Golden Globes are jockeying with the New York film critics, you know, because you don't want to be too late and irrelevant, but also if the race shapes up late, you don't want to be the ones who are like national board of view, because it's, I think a small group of critics is kind of hilariously out of step with what becomes the consensus. I was looking at their recent picks and they agree with the Oscar best picture. Almost never like wow. once every decade, it'll happen to intersect and it won't be, it won't be some predictable masterpiece. It'll just be like, yeah, they both liked slumdog millionaire, I guess. Yeah, they couldn't say no to uh, Green Book. 
Uh-huh. You know, but the rest of the time, I think this year the National Board of Review said Top Gun Maverick. You know, they were did they really? They were populist this year, but then last year it was Licorice Pizza, a, a, a movie that generated a lot more think pieces than than ticket sales or awards. I heartily agree because Licorice Pizza basically illustrated my childhood, or rather, two years earlier than my childhood. I mean, I was, it really resonated. I was I, the waterbeds <laughs> resonated. The uh, the age gap uh, I could not overlook. I think you. Yeah. She, I don't know why. She, I don't. I do not buy that she would be interested in this high school boy. It seems like a. Oh. It seems like a high school boy's fantasy. Yes. That an interesting twenty something would want to date him. But you will you will notice in the in the uh, in the oeuvre of that particular writer director, there's an awful lot of that. But, I haven't thought about that. Precocious. Am I going to have to go love. back and look at look at the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, age gaps? Um, around the same time, Variety starts doing a critics poll. The National Board of Review does, um, and so you know more than anybody else, the movie industry is creating this thing where at the end of every year, there's a series of banquets um, and a series of lists that get get published where critics and readers alike um, kind of jockey over what the best of the year was, as if that's a meaningful way to think about art. Um, Because, you know, it's if you don't work in an industry, it is weird to be like, well, the thing about the films of 88. But now we're totally, this is baked into our culture. You know, even a a, a kind of a layperson will know that 1939 was some famously great year. And, uh, you know, what are the years that were weak? And and finally, we arrive at 1952. Yay! When this story will begin and end in Belgium, like all good stories do, the Festival Mondial du Film et des Beaux-Arts de Belgique, the the Belgian Film and, and Fine Arts Festival, um, decides on a project. The movies are now 50 years old, they say, which is a little bit iffy. But yeah, basically there's been half a century of some kind of attempt to make film. A, a time to look back and review and I guess as a hook for their festival, they contact 100 big names in the, in the film industry, uh, directors and producers and so on, and ask them, hey, what do you think the 10 best films of, of film's first half century have been? Mm-hmm. It's called the Brussels Referendum, in hindsight. And they emphasize that, look, we're, you know, we're just asking for your personal preference. What, are your, what is your feeling about this, John Ford or Rene Claire or whatever? Like, um, you don't have to be delivering us any kind of attempt at a objective, academically important, historically important elite, just what are your 10, even back then, they're like, it's a little bit striking. What are your 10 films that make you happy and feel good? You know, uh, this should be particular to you. And mostly what they get back is complaints. (laughs) A bunch of people refuse, a bunch of people send refusals. Charlie Chaplin, Eric von Stroheim, Rene Claire, Jean Cocteau, Alfred Hitchcock, Laurence Olivier, all people who are like, not going to play this game. Okay. My people. Yeah. And I'm, 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 for some reason, I'm sure many of I mean, many of these names are kind of hoity-toity, and you would yeah. think to yourself that they object to the art being dragged through the... Yeah, it's not a sports It's not a competition. Guys. Exactly. Yeah. And to this day, you'll hear this with the Oscars. Like, it makes no sense to say, did this guy play an elderly African-American garbage man as well as this young guy played a hot white werewolf? You know, it's... How are we even... Pretending this is a thing, um, Francis McDormand. But there's something wins fun it all. About it. Francis McDormand every year. Um, but they do get an, enough people, and they get a lot of people just complaining about having to do it. You know what a what a difficult choice it is. You know, choosing my children, etc. 
But they get uh, dozens of ballots back. And because a lot of them are from name people, it becomes kind of, they publish some of them. It becomes interesting. You know, they're like, who would have thought that, uh, you know, Carl Dreyer, who who, uh, produces these kind of dour, Lutheran, somber mood pieces, loves The Petrified Forest, an early gangster movie with, uh, you know, the, the, the movie that kind of broke Humphrey Bogart. So there's these kind of fun discoveries like this. Um, another thing they find is that lots of people are voting for themselves, <laughs> which is so bizarre to me. And I think today you would not see it. No. It would really take a gutsy person to be like, I know this is going to be published, but, you know, I, Paul Thomas Anderson, think that There Will Be Blood is the best movie of the 90s. You know, every once in a while, you do get a celebrity that where their brand is that they're just unapologetically like, I am the greatest. It's you know? the post-Muhammad Ali yeah. era. But it's so rare, and you can only get away with it if you are the right kind of flamboyant, which no, almost no one is. I think because it's a, a list of ten, then at least you can put, make your movie one of them. Yeah, right. The, your humble author cannot help but add that in the number ten spot, I have placed my own... Um, so I guess, you know, to a man, a lot of the big names make number not, number 10 is one of their own uh-huh. movies. Or at least one, they, you know, I, I think they say that Billy Wilder offers Ninochka, which is a movie he wrote but did not direct. So it's some kind of humble brag, you know. If you modesty. ran for office, would you vote for yourself or would you sportingly vote for your opponent? I feel like that's a little bit different. It's secret, for one. It's That's the main difference. And also it's such a large sample size that you you know you're unlikely to swing it. You know? but you also, it's a symbolic vote either way. I remember when I ran for office, sitting and looking at my ballot and saying, well, you know, I want to be a sporting person and give my my charitable yay to my opponent, but do I not think I'm the best candidate? That's what always made me think it was the silliest possible vote. Like, if you don't have your own vote, who yeah, is going to vote for exactly. you? Exactly. Like, I... I do believe I would be the best in this job. Why would I throw and, my vote away? And did you vote for John? What's his name? I'll never say. Oh no, Grant. I didn't. I didn't vote for that guy. No. <laughs> I was trying to think. What he is was, that guy's name? John Grant. He was not. He was not the best candidate. That, uh, but who uh, cares? Of the three of us. It, it would be the most sporting to no. vote to vote for the. To, it would be the most selfless to vote for your uh, your last pick. No, I would still be sitting chewing on gristle if I'd done that. So this is a big deal. For the first time, they can print a top 10 list. A direct, they have enough people that they can say, this is a consensus of the world's great directors. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, um, it is, uh, let's see. Go on. A lot of silent movies, a lot of movies that now seem a little bit dated to us. The consensus, the winner, they just print a top 10, and the winner is... Um, the Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein's silent movie Potemkin about, I, about the sure we watched it on my late lamented podcast. Uh, oh right, it's a war Friendly film. Fire, yeah, and it's got the it, you know for a movie of that era it does hold up very well because he basically invented modern editing. It's got the yeah. baby carriage going down the steps, the steps that yeah. Brian De Palma ripped off. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty and, fantastic to watch to see all, all the tropes. Yeah, and and you really have to if you don't know this guy invented this kind of cross-cutting, then you're not going to be, like, moved by it. But right. to me, there's if you watch enough movies, you do kind of internalize, hey, movies from the 20s don't really look this contemporary. This guy does have something. And so, you know, that's how I still feel when I look at Wells or somebody who is ahead of their time, but has maybe been dulled by the culture catching up. Well, I just sat down with my, uh, my 11 and 10-month-old daughter, and we watched Casablanca. Interesting. And 
Is this because of the conversation we were having at dinner the other night about what one black and white movie would you show? Do you do you remember we were talking about this? Yeah, it might that might have planted it in my head. Huh. Um, Mindy has a friend who had, ne- had we were asking about It's a Wonderful Life, and her friend was like, "What? I've never seen a black and white movie." Yeah, right. And right. Mindy, and we, so we were like, "Well, what is the black and white movie you show to somebody like this who, who apparently starts Wizard of Oz with the Munchkins every time?" And I would not have, I would not have come to Casablanca on my own, but. I was like, yeah, what's well, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's got Nazis. It's, it's got, got it's got romance. It's got action. It's yeah. got a. It's got uh, some franche. It's got movie stars who still kind of hold up oh, as oh, movie oh. stars. It's glamorous Although setting. You can never. I've never been able to understand Humphrey Bogart as a romantic lead. Big head. But there you go. Okay, That's the secret. Head. Short guy, big head. It reads well on screen. But watching it through her eyes and watching her grapple with why am I watching this, and you know, and the fact that I'm like, no, no, no. But that's the thing. He never says play it again, Sam. And all you know, all this stuff. And so I started to do some research on it and learned that uh Casablanca was not a hit. It did fine in theaters, but it was just a middle of the road film. But it became uh, a movie that played in revival houses. And then what was it that that it was like a movie that uh every year at Yale Homecoming they played it for two weeks at, at this little theater in oh, New Haven right? as some kind of like, they did it once and then everybody was like, ha ha ha, let's do that again. And for however many years, they just did it every year at homecoming. And, and through that, it became like this beloved staple. That's a real phenomenon that you see when you trace the history of these top 10 polls is that you have to remember at the very beginning, there is no great books shelf for movies. Not only is there no sense of what the canon is, but also there's no way to watch them. You're, you're, oh, you're right. thinking back to when this, you know, yeah, you know what I loved when it came out in 1931 was this. And so you're not really, nobody's really like, I've seen it on TV a couple times since then. It doesn't really hold up. When did they start doing repertory theaters or? Yeah. A lot of movies just kind of caught a lot of movies that we now think of as classics of that era just kind of caught on over broadcast TV. You know, the right. networks that would show Wizard of Oz every Thanksgiving the accident of It's a Wonderful Life falling into the public domain so that TV stations could show it on Christmas. And then a movie that had been a flop became a, you know, maybe the most quoted movie of the century. Yeah. Um, and then what what gets programmed at film festivals, you know, because a director could be forgotten until one influential screening happens and suddenly the critical establishment is all abuzz. That's kind of what happens here. No matter what century of the far-flung future you find yourself listening to Omnibus, no matter what species you are or what kind of tendril or appendage you've used to access this recording, I think we all know that there's one constant that will remain over the millennia. I think we all know that no matter when you have found this, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online is and always will be Squarespace. That's right. Squarespace for eternity, providing beautiful websites, helping smart people engage with their audiences, selling anything, whether that's their products, their content, their time. That's because Squarespace's broad suite of tools covers all these options. Let's say you're making or selling something. You have an e-commerce site. Squarespace has all the tools you need. You get inventory management, you get checkout, you get secure payment options. It's all right there, ready to go. You can use their best-in-class templates to build out your store. 
you can customize it however you want, but you're using Squarespace's amazing framework. You can even do appointment scheduling. If you're a personal trainer of giant horned buffalo fish of the future, if you want to get those giant buffalo fish svelte, megafauna svelte, uh, you're going to need calendaring software. And guess what? Online booking and scheduling can be added easily to any Squarespace site. All your Buffalo Fish clients can see your availability. They can reschedule if needed. You're not alone in this anymore. Squarespace has your back. So whether you're a business owner or you know someone who might need these tools, here's the important thing to remember. The whispering from the dust that comes to you from across the centuries. Head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for your free trial. Then when you're ready to launch your site, use offer code omnibus and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And then at launch, offer code omnibus will save you 10% off your first domain purchase. You know, the month after this this uh, Brussels referendum is reported, Sight and Sound magazine, love, love to get to the title an hour in, Sight and Sound, I used to sell it at uh, Steve's Broadway News. They had it on the newsstand? Yeah, for sure. Well, it's very hard to get now. I'll and it was that. only nerds that bought it. I spent, uh, I believe that 100%. You know, we had like nine cinemaphile magazines. It was a whole like corner of the store. I spent a very pleasant weekday this week sitting in the University of Washington Library oh looking God, through you microfiche old, nerds. I did not go to the microfiche because <laughs> they have bound volumes. Oh, wow, they do. Yeah. They had bound <laughs> volumes of sight and sound back to like 1958. Wow, no kidding. Um, and so I could go. Our tax dollars at work. I could, well, the British tax dollars at work. Plus, yeah, plus one. So the sight and sound magazine is an arm of the British Film Institute, like a, a lot of European nations. Great Britain has this kind of nationalized um, nonprofit heavily, with heavy government ties, currently funded by the National Lottery, mm-hmm. whose aim is to support homegrown film. It's not, it's not paid for by the TV licenses that everybody has to pay. In well, order even to worse, lottery tickets. TV. It's a tax on the dumb. Um, but luckily, it's paid for one of the, you know, the world's greatest film archive. The U.S. has never really had this because... A, our movies will get watched everywhere no matter how bad they are, uh, even if we don't subsidize it. God bless America. And B, we believe in freedom and therefore Barely. evil evil social democracy should not be propping up private industry in this That's way. Right. That's right. Um, and especially not snooty East Coast critical darling. But in Europe, they have no such problems with this. Like Finland wants to make sure Finnish movies get distributed and made and distributed and so the BFI is a huge powerful, I mean, it's, I don't want to say powerful, but it's a, it's a prestigious institution that supports scholarship and has a big library and supports British film in general. And at one arm of this is this quarterly review magazine that they started publishing in 1930. And they published a piece called, uh, I think, As You Like It in 1952 about this Brussels referendum. And then the following month they thought it would because they are all film academics they were like well what if you didn't ask what if you weren't asking orson wells and jean renoir what if you were asking us critics what would we say were the best movies yeah because who, who would know better than us those Let's foreground us those who can't do <laughs> and so they publish a follow-up thing in the following issue i think called as the critics like it um and it's not a cover package you know 
it was very fun, by the way, looking at these old Down magazines. Because you can, you know, at one point you're reading, I mean, the very first one I opened had a long argument about the plot of last year at Marion Bad. And then by the time I got to the most recent ones, I would turn the page from the poll and it would be a review of Austin Powers and Goldmember or something. I'm I'm not saying it's societal decline, but it's Uh like you could watch the 20th century pass. And because it's nice, glossy stock, magazines hold up well. Yeah. Well, and it was like uh, oversized, right? Bigger than a... Big square bound. um, And these appear to have been like bound by some institution. I don't know if it was UW or elsewhere, right after they came out. So they weren't all beat up like old books are and they weren't yellowed like old newspapers were. Like I felt like some movie nerd in 1958 reading about what Bergman movie might open in my country next. Fortunately, no one but you has checked those out. And no one has ever read them. In in 42 years. The funny thing is, as we'll see, some of them are now collector's items. And I was like, I could just slip this into my pants and watch. Should these even be here? That's not a Ken Jennings thing. Well, I didn't do it, but I'm now suggesting it to thousands of people less ethical than myself. Don't steal from your local libraries. Libraries have had a huge problem with people just, you know, getting a rare book, ripping out the map, stuffing it into their pants, and then selling it to a dealer for $50,000. Oh, believe me, I have a whole wall of stolen uh, maps from uh, Austrian atlases. Not by you. No, no, no. They were stolen by Austrian, Austrian thieves. No, probably Hungarian and Slovak thieves. Sold on the open market to you. So this thing's just buried in the middle of the magazine. Again, as I say, after some navel-gazing about uh, Marguerite Duras novels and Alan René movies. Um, And... They the response they get from critics are unanimously negative. Oh yeah, what an awful like because because they say the same thing like just the ten movies that mean the most to you you know and so they get how do I narrow it down to ten people are critics are legitimately telling them their counts I've seen five thousand seven hundred and seventy seven movies and you want me to narrow it down to this arbitrary number how dare you sir how dare you I'm consulting this this uh, spiral bound notebook I carry with me but everywhere yeah that's the thing anybody who knows their number also probably has a has a ranking, so come on, sir. Yeah. Um, others, basically, you know, they, they in the issue, they list all the quotes. What an awful idea. What a thing to ask. This is a lousy and silly pursuit. This is impossible. This is barbarous. And this being Britain in 1952, goodness, how hard it was to whittle down. So it, it's, I used the word barbarous yesterday, but I haven't used the word lousy in forever. When was the last time you called something lousy? Oh, I love lousy. And I think it might just be... It's a great word. Neil Simon plays that I saw in the 80s. Well, I don't know what made me say lousy. It has lice. That's how bad it is. The old meaning of lousy was if something was teeming. You would be like, this room is lousy with drunks. Sure. I think I would use that more likely than to call something lousy. To me, that was just crazy because I only had heard the, um, you know. This is bad. This is not quality. No, I think maybe my my older family members all said like, this place is lousy with communists. If you are someone who in 2023 still says things are lousy, meaning abundant, please let us know. Um, They do not find that Potemkin is the best movie ever made. Okay. What's shocking about their list is it's extremely recent. This is 1952, and these critics are like, three of the top ten are like from the last five to ten years. Man with the golden arm. (laughs) <laughs> um, that's yet to come out maybe oh. isn't that 50? oh it might be when did, that, when did the movie come out uh, it's no it's movies that do not get watched much anymore uh, isn't it 49 is that I would have thought that was man with gold this is the type of let's do it in real time content that the man with a golden gun the Nelson Algren novel comes out in 
Looks like the movie's 55. Oh, 55. Hmm. Because if it's Sinatra, it's got to be after From Here to Eternity, which is 51 or so. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not great with dates, but often I can do the order like that. Um, like in the top 10 is like a very recent kind of pseudo documentary made by the Nanook of the North guy. Okay. Except this one's set in the bayous of Louisiana. Um, David Lean's Brief Encounter, kind of a Hollywood. Weep. This is a British, so this is going to be the British film establishment, even though they do send ballots all over the world. The, the, the poll will have a British bias for many decades. British bias in film or British bias in taste? Both. Because um, I could see they would be like, oh, we love American noir. Yeah. There's definitely a thing where once the French critics start getting into it, then you see their tastes reflected in the French, the American and Japanese movies they like. Um, uh, but they like the the British made, the pride of the British made uh, art of Brief Encounter, a kind of a, mm-hmm. a sad will they, won't they married romance. The winner is actually... Ladri di Biciclette, Victoria De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. Yes. It's often called the Bicycle Thief in the U.S., but um, in Europe it was almost always Bicycle Thieves, which actually um, reflects a plot development from the third act of the movie. There are multiple thieves. Have you have you ever seen Vittorio De Sica's Italian neorealist classic Bicycle Thieves? I don't think so, but then again, I don't know, because it sounds very familiar and I... It's the kind of thing that works as high art because it's right. it's after the war. It's shot on location, unlike Hollywood movies. It deals in kind of a gritty way with poverty and deprivation. The, the, like war-torn poverty? It's, or A lot of um, De Sica's and Rossellini's movies are made in war-torn Rome after the war. In this case, a poor man needs his bike for his new job of, of uh, plastering posters, right. the, J- the Jason Finn uh, yeah, sure. pursuit. Sure. And, uh, and his bicycle is stolen. And so it's him and his young son wandering Rome, fo- trying to follow leads that will get him his bike back. Oh, I don't know. It's basically Pee-wee's big adventure. But, yeah, sure. But um, but it also, in addition to being arty, it very much works on the audience level because it's a tearjerker about a cute kid and a, a stiff upper lip dad. Um, so on a sentimental level, it really works. And I think maybe today's audience is it actually, at the time, what seemed like a, a too gritty to be believed movie now probably seems like a... Romantic fantasy. Yeah, like a insufferably cute sentimental movie but it's in italian it is and and so there was already like a burgeoning italian art film universe yeah and uh this would have been this would have happened in the 30s as well the french were you know ahead of a lot of the you know the hollywood and the uk film establishment on a lot of artistic axes so they would have been used to seeing groundbreaking movies subtitled but they weren't bound by the Hayes code so they could do sexier things right was that always a part of it yeah, I don't know how much that would have affected a film poll in 1952. That's interesting to think about. Because when you look at the list, it's not, you know, it doesn't yet reflect the the directors like Bergman or Fellini who would have built an audience like that in the U.S. Yeah. The uh, the French and Italian and Scandinavian directors who, you know, whose movies were also a little bit saucy. These all seem to be very much, you know, you know we're man of the people and Chaplin makes us happy. Or, yeah, you know, sure. the muscular... Uh, nature of uh, this von Stroheim movie or the close-ups in Passion of Joan of Arc. You know, it's it's just kind of a, you know, what are the artsiest things? Anything with Burt Lancaster. Citizen Kane does not make the top 12. It is tied for 13. Oh, tied with what? Um, Let me see. Renoir's Grand Illusion, a World War One era thing, and John Ford's Grapes of Wrath. Interesting. But the I sample, you were say Steamboat Willie. The sample size is so small that, like, it's really whether a movie got 
15 votes or nine votes will make it either number four or number 14. You know, it's, wow. um, and this continues in the future of the poll because they continue to crucially in 1962, some editor has like, Hey, it's been 10 years since we ran that little package. And a lot has happened in movies since then. The French new wave has happened. A new up and coming group of critics have championed, as you say, noir and American Westerns and, um, you know, all these kind of old fashioned musicals and literary adaptations. What, what French would have called the cinema of quality has kind of fallen off the critical map. What would this list look like today? Let's revisit our, our thing. Did they still ask only 15 critics? <laughs> it's still a small group. Let me see. Do, are there numbers here? It seems to be about the same number of critics because the winning movie is in the low 20s and you need about 10 to get in the top 10. Mm. And it hasn't been shaken up that much. Uh, Citizen Kane has moved to the top. It's, um, you know, it, it was a newish movie then and now it's it's got 20 years of... What do you think changed in the culture that Citizen Kane in that 10 years or 15 years? Well, let me ask you, what, what do you think of Citizen Kane when you watch it today? Are you one of these people who's like, overrated, I can't believe people talk about this movie? No, but uh, but uh, there, it's such a um, psychological film. It all, it's, it all happens in a room. It seems very modern to me, just the, the framing thing of like, you know, we're going to structure a movie like this by following a new lead character in every act and he'll have different flashbacks. And yeah, that all seems like, you know, today you wouldn't think anything of it. But I think what, but in you 1942, know, I think the startling subject matter had to play. Right. This is a real person we're tweaking. Yeah. And that's kind now, of lost to us you know, today. Mm-hmm. Today, if you did a movie about a Trump like blowhard, that would be what would lead all the discourse about it. Today, nobody really thinks that much about the real life. Uh, menace of William Randolph Hearst when they talk about Kane. Right. It's just all about, oh, deep focus photography. He puts ceilings on the sets. You know, it's more about the Wells, the wizard, Wells, the technician. Um, but at this point, critics love Wells. You know, if, if there's one thing that um, the French New Wave guys agree on, it's that, like, Wells was a boy genius. Um, and this Wells should, also agreed. Yeah, Wells would be the first... And that everybody else is an idiot. I love. Do you, do you love watching seventies and eighties clips oh of Orson Welles saying that Woody Allen is a terrible little man? Yeah. What was the what the was worst the, kind of human? Charlie the, Chaplin was quite dumb when you think about it. He did one the other day. Oh, it was he uh, did. No, no, that he didn't. Big if true. But it was uh, what was it? A, 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 what was I? I was down some rabbit hole. It's not that he. It's not that this went around. It's that I I ended up in some dark room where uh, Kazan. Uh, I was, I was, I found myself uh, reading up on him and then watched Wells denounce him when he was getting all his honorary Oscars late in life. And, and people were either standing or uh, standing and applauding or sitting with their arms folded in Nick Nolte sat. Yeah. In 1985 Oscar ceremonies. And Wells is like garbage (laughs) traitor. Um, mostly it is kind of frozen in the silence. It's most of the same movies that you would have seen on the list 10 years ago, maybe because they're asking a mix, enough of a mix of old and new credits that critics that unless it's something like Citizen Kane that everybody can get together on, no, nobody has the votes. Um, but But how how do they feel about the big epics, which would have been coming out at that point? The big, well, the, or the silent epics seem to be kind of falling off the list. There's no more Griffith anymore. It's gotta be something like Eisenstein where it's a, you know, it's a it's a a technician at work, or uh, 
you know, there's, and there's definitely a, a mind at work and an, uh, in this case, a left-leaning um, political mind at work. Right, right. Uh, but Lawrence of Arabia isn't like... I mean, Lawrence of Arabia came out that year. And there's really, there are a couple recent movies, you know, um, they have, dis- it's not just the French New Wave, we've also discovered that Japan is making good movies, India's making movies, um, so uh, there's a Mizuguchi movie on the list, uh, Satyajit Ray, you know, the Indian, um, you know, Pathar Pachali is, almost makes the top ten, his, uh, the first in Ray's Apu trilogy of kind of, um, your kind of honest autobiographical Indian films, La Ventura, an Antonio an Antonioni kind of avant-garde art movie where a woman disappears and is never found, and people kind of alienated people stare at each other sadly, is the number two movie and comes within two votes of of passing Citizen Kane. Huh. And so this is this is a movie that would have just come out a few years before. You know, there's enough people who are like, even though this is new, we're convinced this is the future. So the early lists have some new movies, or you know. At least, at least there's one here. I mean, this is kind of what made me suspicious of these lists when I first encountered them. What in the '80s, where it felt like, really, the Battle of Algiers is the is the greatest movie of all time. Like, I feel like, well, mm, you've yeah, got yeah. some ideology pushing this. That's true. And then some of them you watch, and it's been a few decades, and maybe they actually don't hold up. You know, yeah, yeah. we we were wrong on some deep level to think that Chaplin was funnier than Keaton or. Or, you know, just that the times changed. Yeah. The styles changed. Um, this list, and somebody in the article actually refers to this, one of the people who write, they they start to, they print every critic's list, which is fun. Oh, that's fun. And somebody says, this is every critic's favorite parlor game. So by 1962, this is established as we know that when critics get together, boy, are they playing the high fidelity, tell me your top five, top ten game. Um, one more reason not to go to that party. The thing is run in 1972. Again, the list with Citizen Kane on top of it basically stays frozen for the rest of the 20th century until I first discovered it in the late, yeah, mid to late 90s. I had a kind of a film nerd friend who worked at the university library who was like, you know, you can walk, come in and just watch any of our laser discs. And so I, I came in and started working my way through the Criterion Collection. Nothing more fun than watching a film in a... In a chair in, in the library. In a carol in the library. <laughs> well, think about this. Like, there's no... We're into the home video age, but there's nowhere I can see these movies. Right, right, of course. You of know, course. Like, where... In C- if I was been in Seattle, I could have gone to Scarecrow and I could have rented these on VHS tape. But the nerds all had Laserdisc because yep. it looked a little better. Yep. And you could watch Potemkin. And I was in Utah. Although and there now was, you own it. And there was no... I do. And, but there was no other way to... You know, even if I wanted to watch some big international hit that was 50 years old. I couldn't watch Seven, Seven Samurai any other way than to go right. put in the laser disc and flip it of course. eight times. Um, and I found the sight and sound list and it had basically stayed frozen with Citizen Kane at the top and then Renoir's Rules of the Game. And this, the 92 list basically was the 62 Whoa, list. interesting. And my, the university library had the sight and sound issue and so I checked it out and they were still only listing, it was still not yet a cover package. Like the 1992 list, it's like Tim Roth talks about Reservoir Dogs is on the cover. And then they're also like, and our poll. It would be like as if the first 50 years of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit issue, they were just like, you know, it was mostly interviewing a jockey or a yeah or a gymnast or something. And then they're like, oh, and we also have bikinis in the back. How, how much of that became just like, well, you have to say these are the top movies because otherwise you look like a dope. And there'd been no 
yeah. disruptor no nobody with long sideburns right like you you don't they're going to print your list so yeah. so some pe- and some people why not say Macmillan and wife and so, and some people do produce a uh, kind of idiosyncratic list because they think that's fun but it's shocking how many people critics and directors alike because in 92 they started directors poll will just be like here are my favorite movies in order and it's basically the top 10 right. citizen kane seventh sam like they kind of feel like i mean honestly it's just because of how art affects you when you're young right like yeah. it becomes it's the first movies you saw that kind of froze your idea of what a great movie is and these guys were reacting to the critical consensus when they were coming up in 62 and so in 92 their list is unchanged and it's they're not bad, but it's Citizen Kane, Wizard of Oz, Seven Samurai, um, Wild What's your favorite Cure record? Mine? Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Disintegration? Yeah, correct. I mean, it's... Moving on. And it's the same thing, right? It's <laughs> yeah. it's like, when did you discover it? Yeah, right. Everything, even if you discover... I found that even bands I discovered at the sellout time, I prefer the later sellout records. Interesting. I prefer um, Doolittle by the Pixies to... Surfer Rosa or Caribou, you know? Fascinating. I prefer... You would get beat up at certain I prefer Document and Green and Out of Time oh to God. Murmur and... Re- uh, I know. I'm going to drag you. But it's just because, you know, where you where you find it. Yeah, sure. You know? Sure, sure. And okay, so, there's, so def- there's definitely a big effect like that with movies. And so it, so when, the, when that became all Gen, Gen X critics, did it... Was it suddenly like, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, that's what happens. So, you know, there's small, there's small increments throughout the... 20th century. You know, in the 60s, we discover Keaton, and suddenly Keaton's like boyoing oh. in the 72 list. Because um, he was just neglected all that time because Chaplin took up all the oxygen? I think it was thought that, you know, Chaplin was the real, had the heart. Oh. And Keaton was just the guy that did the, the, the well-constructed mechanical gags. And as the world changed and we were like, it's actually really mawkish when Chaplin sees the blind girl, whereas... Keaton has so house, much to say. If a house falls on you, like, that's <laughs> universal. <laughs> I mean, it really shows that critics are are heartless yeah. um, monsters, basically, that they're like, I'd rather watch a house fall on a dude than a blind lady fall in love with a dude, you know? Well, anything's, uh, there, there's nothing worse than corny. Exactly. And, and that hap- that starts happening at some point. It's all these people that make that true. At some point, we, yeah, and it's self-perpetuating. All their friends are telling them Chaplin's corny and uh, Hitchcock's not anymore. Before, Hitchcock was corny and... And uh, and at some point, somebody's going to influentially argue. Actually, no. Mm. Here's why Chaplin's super relevant to our age. And you know, if the world hasn't ended, maybe it swings back. You know, the '72 list is where you get some um, Bergman and Fellini movies, but they start to fall out. Actually, '82. Um, there's hardly you know the newest films in the top ten are like Seven Samurai and Singing in the Rain, like Revival House, your parents' movies are the newest movies on the list. Although there has been a reappraisal of Hitchcock. I think Donald Spoto's book has maybe come out, so we now think of him as a dark genius who's not just making slick genre movies. He's actually some kind of crazy outsider artist. Um, And as Truffaut notes, the 1982 list is kind of the last one where we're just going to be going on memory. Like Truffaut offers some quote that's like, you know, in the same way that the canon of literature was changed by people having a shelf full of books, for the first time in the movies, we're not just going to be going on our childhood memories. We're actually going to have a shelf full of movies, and that's going to change everything. And it doesn't happen immediately. You know, 1992, the top 10 list still has no 60s movies on it. Bizarre. Um, 
It's a bigger group. It's like 145 critics. They're mostly amenable now. Nobody's complaining. The directors, when they had a director's poll, it's the directors who are like, this is bullshit. You know, uh, Ilya Kazan won't do it. Gus Van Sant won't do it. Godard won't do it. Um, this is not a respectable pursuit for an artist like myself. Just oh, to they, submit won't, a list. they won't. They, they won't, won't submit a list. Contribute. Oh, yeah. right, um, of course not. It's not a sport. In the 1992 list, it's still they're still just listing a top 10. So they have all this data. And I went back and I construct by hand, I found the 92 issue and I went through the lists director by director and critic by critic and kept a tally. I produced my own top 100 on my computer. Boy, you're really dispelling those rumors that you're a mega a lot nerd. Of, a lot of people think I'm some kind of weird, um, you know, fixated wonk or geek. No. But I was doing totally normal stuff like hand counting sight and sound ballots. Recently. In the mid-90s. <laughs> because they were not producing the top 100. You know, like, uh, the culture was not yet like, you've got all this data, let's dig into it. Um, whereas that did change over the years. In, 90, in 1992, for the fr- I mean, in the 70s and 80s polls, there's some note that like, Hey, you know, Raymond Williams and Edward Said are telling us our canon is too male and white. Um, so take a look at this. We got a few Japanese directors. You know, right. 92 is the first time where they're like, wow, there are n- really no women in this list. No women, dire- no women directors. <laughs> and it's really because women did not have the chance to direct. A movie by a Belgian director named Chantal Ackerman, kind of an avant-garde quasi-documentarian, the kind of director you who's... Movies might be eight minutes long or might be uh, four hours long. You'd be more likely to see them playing by night in a museum or an art gallery than in an art house. You know, the kind of art film I'm talking about where it's yes. not even distributed. It's, yes, know, I do. Like when we say, when normal people say art film, they mean like, depending on who they are, they might mean uh, Life is Beautiful with Roberto Benigni. You yeah, know? or a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas this is like, no, theaters won't show this. You had to go to a museum for a week when it was showing. Um, she had a movie called John Dealman that um, actually got some votes, which leads the whoever's writing the cover package. Or it's not a cover package. Whoever's writing the introduction to sniff. Well, certain films certainly must matter to a generation. The implication being, yeah, there were sure some young feminists this time, and they picked this Chantal Ackerman movie kind of three or four hours about the drudgery of a Belgian housewife. Right. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft, right up there in the canon. Exactly, and there's one. It's you know, there's a couple token directors. There's one Claude, uh, Claire Denis movie. Maybe there's one Maya Darren movie. Um, in 2002, for the first time, there is a cover package. Sight and Sound has realized oh. this is the draw. Like this is why people buy this. It's episode. been ten years, and now here's the new poll because the culture had been coming around to this. Like it's all now about top ten lists, and these guys have the only one that goes back to 1952. Um, it's still a bunch. There's still two silent movies in the top 10, but like you can see at least some reappraisal movies are made. Like the new movies in the top 10 in 2002 are Vertigo. Okay. Which has now had its restoration and a new audience has seen it. And it's by this time it's, I have seen the Robert Harris restoration and I'm like, Oh, I was wrong about this on VHS. This movie's fantastic. And is that the, the only, or is it the highest ranking Hitchcock? It is. And 2001, a space odyssey. These are the new movies okay. in 2002. Weirdly, um, Godfather and Godfather Part Two have been considered as one movie for some reason, Oops. and and they're doing, I know I object, and they're doing very well. Oh wait, are they talking about the one where they were combined for <laughs> no, television? No. They are not talking about the CBS one. <laughs> what was that? The Godfather Saga? Yeah, in chronological. I order? watched it on TV when it came out. Well, it has scenes that aren't in either of the first two movies. That it has some scenes that were cut out from both of the theatrical cuts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
but you can see those scenes on video now. So um, weirdly, the Godfather does very well in the director's poll, but not in the critics poll. Nobody thinks Coppola is like a top whatever director. But this is what year? Two thousand two. You're two, kidding me. It, it's two thousand two, and the discussion is still Vertigo in two thousand one or the hot up and comers. Wow. They are. But lit- there's no Apocalypse now. There's no. Um... Um, let me see. Is it this year or the next year? In one of these years, Apocalypse now is the most. Well, that takes us to 2012. 2002 is up to 145 critics, and there's for the first time, there's a bunch of hand-wringing that, wow, this is a lot of white males. Like, right. Maybe it's not just that there is a canon, it's selective, but like, what if our selectivity biases are like actually kind of de- detrimental Wait a minute. to the world as well, a whole? Maybe we're the baddies. It's, a, it's definitely, a, for the first time, there's a, what if we're the baddies? <laughs> Whereas in 1992, the poll is like, yeah, some young feminists like Chantal Ackerman, I guess, if that's what you're into. Whereas in 2002, it's very much like, um, could this be some self-perpetuating thing about white directors? Did you hear there's a black film director? Exactly. Come on. But not on, not on this list, there is not, right. by the way. And even in 2012, it's still incredibly white. You have to go all the way down to number 14 to get a movie from the 70s, which is Apocalypse Now. You have to go down to the mid-20s even to get a movie from... The 21st century, even though they're kind of by this, I guess there's enough old critics in the poll that um, even though Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love or David Lynch's Mulholland Drive are just unquestionably now top of the canon movies. With a bullet. They're still number 25 with a bullet, you know? Um, Vertigo, in a big surprise, is now, for the first time since 1952, there's a new number one. Vertigo noses ahead of Citizen Kane. Wow. And the media has started to report on the poll as a horse race. In the weeks leading up to it, will it be Kane again or will there be an upset? Um, You can treat anything as a horse race, not just... It turns out you can ruin anything this way, not just electoral politics. Uh, For the first time, they're not sending out handwritten letters. Um, They're doing it digitally. They're including online critics. And because it's digital, they can reach out to 1,000 people. They get 846 responses back. And Vertigo. Is the best movie of all time. Have you seen it? What do you think about Vertigo? I have seen it. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It tends to be divisive. Vertigo tends to be like, this movie doesn't work. The third act is crazy. I mean, I like a crazy third act, but... I just liked kind of the dreamlike, medit- the stuff that some people hate, the driving silently through San Francisco with the Bernard Herrmann music playing, um, the the you know the implication that maybe she is kind of a ghost... Then it turns out the ghost is in his head, and it's it's his problem. Call is coming from inside the house. The feminist reading of like kind of how how awful Jimmy Stewart, you know, America's sweetheart, is actually just a sicko in this movie. I'm a Kim Novak stan, so. But she looks weird in the third act with the wig and the dark hair. And yeah, but you know, doesn't mean you don't want to see her in a wig and dark hair. Um, it had, by the time Vertigo, like I kind of felt like I had already been like, whoa, like this is Vertigo in 2001 really are the movies that like kind of woke me up and, oh, wow. okay. and suddenly they're taking the pull by storm. And I felt like, ah, my opinions have been, and it's just because there were more people of my generation in the poll. But and, you as a 20, oh no, I guess you were 30. I would have been like when I, when I'm like getting my mind blown by Vertigo in 2001 and Michael Powell's movies. You know, basically the movies I saw on the 92 side and sound poll, I'm a mid 20 year old. So you're a 25 year old and you're not like reservoir dogs. You're, you're planting your flag at vertigo. And I wonder why, you know, at some level it is kind of the back padding 
of, hey, I've seen the great works, capital yeah, yeah, G, capital right. W. Right, right. Um, but, you know, when I saw Pulp Fiction, it was the same thing. I couldn't get enough of it, and I watched it 10 times. But it really was like, it's because, like, this movie seems to have the stature that I associate with. Right. With these all-time greats that I've been, that I've been watching in kind of a homeworky way. But no one ever says Dr. Zhivago, right? There's no, it's always that bloated 60s stuff never... Lawrence of Arabia did very well in the, with the directors for a while. And because it's a British poll, those David Lean movies kind of do disproportionately well. Right. But yeah, these kind of bloated 60s, they're the first things to go. Like, I think even in their time, a bunch of critics were like, oh no, you know, do not go see it around the world in 80 days. Yeah, but you and I were just talking yesterday about like how we're going to conspire to help you buy the Cinerama... <laughs> And the Cinerama <laughs> was made to show those, like... It's got the curved screen that was fashionable for 18 months. Yeah, Vertigo is going to look like like Ding Dong on that. And all the decisions that went into making those movies were motivated by how do we get people to come, to not watch TV, but to come to a movie. They got to be wide, they got to be colorful, they got to be long, they got to be an event. You know, um, maybe they're a road show, they've got an overture, it's, it, it's like the theater, it's... Yeah. You, maybe you dress up, maybe you bring your neighbors. Smellatron. Smellatron, 3D, all that kind of stuff. So that brings us, finally, this is probably a pretty long show. Oh, and there are some women in the top 100 for the first time in Excellent. 2012. Like, I think... Um, Catherine Bigelow? No, too early. Too early. It's um, a French director named uh, Claire Denis, whose uh, works are beloved. This 1940s surrealist named Maya Darren, who um, you know, hung out with Man Ray and made these little kind of... Um, short feminist movies, and again, Chantal Ackerman. In 2022, the world has changed. Um, this is like an epical event for film nerds who now can all hang out with each other on film Twitter and on Letterboxd. You know, this is no longer happening in, a fi- uh, you know, in city-level film critic circles. These conversations are now happening online, which means they're public, which means anybody can get into the discourse. Smart or dumb, old or young... There's not an internet yet, right? The, I mean, there is, but there's not one that's... Well, well I guess it's in tw- exactly these people. In, 20, you know, in 2012, for the first time, they're finding these online-only reviewers and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll, send you a, you know, we'll invite, send you an invite through email. But 2022 is fully... You know, oh, this yeah. list came out in December. Okay. So this is a borderline current event show, which is why I almost didn't do it. But, um, but, but weirdly, not for Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For all the Gen Z sight and sound subscribers. Um, they can't afford it, Ken. It's some, they can't afford your boomer movie they, magazine. Well, the cover price is probably 12 pounds, even though the BFI is subsidizing it. Um, this was a massive event in film Twitter world, you know, and it, and it bubbled out to, to headlines, you know, like every, cause it's every 10 years, every 10 years, the landscape of film criticism changes coming in the, at the end of 2022, the BFI has announced that the Sight and Sound uh, Critics and Directors poll will return. And this time, it's fully, the culture has caught up with it. The, the co- it's a big cover package, four different covers, so collectors can get them all. Um, instructions about, you better mail order in advance because these are going to run out. And hate. they do, by the way. They're selling for $185 on eBay within weeks. Hate, hate, hate. I hate uh, everything about that. The headline says, the votes are in. Mm. But you can choose. Do you want the Kane cover? Do you want the 2001 cover? Do you want the... Michael um, Kane, Citizen Kane, his brother Citizen, Kane Mutiny. No, that's Charles Foster Kane. There is a man, a certain man. Uh, this time they've reached out. They've there's been a massive push to broaden 
the demographic. This time, you know, last time it was big news that 100 and it when it went from 145 to 846. This year it's doubled. You know, they reach out to 1,600 thousands, thousands of people and they get 1,639 critics' votes back, 500 directors' vote. And it's not just that, but there's specifically language saying we'd like to platform to a wider range of voters. Right. So there definitely is some consideration to why diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Why has nobody in the continent of Africa ever gotten one of these? Why is it still like 88% male critics? So, you the know, Battle of Algiers back at the top. Pontecorvo. <laughs> so the modern idea that, uh, you know, these numbers do not look like yeah. the world is very much top of mind. And I haven't seen a gender breakdown of, of the results. So is Black Panther the number one movie of all time? <laughs> uh, the number one movie is a surprise, and okay. it leads to headlines even not outside the world. As, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be so many bad think pieces about this. And sure enough, there was. Was um, it The Devil Inside Miss Jones? It is the over three-hour Chantal Ackerman feminist drudgery masterpiece of the '70s, Jean Dielman. Uh, boy, what's it called? It's her. It's her address. Jean Dielman, Vantois, Rue de Commerce, Arquis de Commerce, um, Mill Quatre Vent, Bruxelles. You know, it's her address in Brussels. Right, rolls right off the tongue. It's it's a three-hour movie with a three-hour title that no one has ever seen. The best movie of all time, and as it, voted by 1,600 critics. And it has just topped Citizen Kane in 2001 and Vertigo and all the rest as the best movie of all time. And for the first time, this is a massive multimedia splash for this. You know, the the next day, the Criterion Channel says, hey, we've got 56 of the 100 mo- top 100 movies. Watch them here. Um, they're revealed in the magazine in countdown form. I think in 2012 was the first time where they actually listed a top 100, like, Look, we have all this data. People are going to... Ken is at home typing this into his spreadsheet anyway. Let's put out a top 100. But this time it's actually a countdown. So it's like, in the number 98 spot, get out. You know, 97. um, And it comes all the way down to... And suddenly, Citizen Kane and Vertigo are runners up to this kind of three-hour feminist gallery piece, basically. Um, oh, and they're showing the BFI South Bank does a series. You can go to the BFI theater and watch all 100 in order. This is Whoa. like, this is a big cultural event and it gets all these headlines um, because this feminist movie is the top pick. And did you immediately watch it? I had just seen it weirdly. Mindy and I had watched it maybe six months before. And what uh, what pressed, what pushed you to, re- to watch it at the time? The same reason I watch a lot of this stuff. There's some kind of... Um, did you know it was nominated? See, or here, I guess it's not nominated, right? This no, is all just coming out of thin air. This comes out of nowhere. Like, and this was a movie that literally came out of thin air. It was like in the 30th spot a mere decade before. And it had been, so it had been reassessed. Well, well, let me discuss this in a second. But I think one of the reasons why these lists appeal is because there's a certain kind of, kind of uh, anal retentive mind that likes m- working through these things methodically. Like, um, oh, now I've got a new list of movies to see. And... I had seen this in the top 100 in 2012, and I was like, oh, how have I never seen this? For, there were a number of African directors and women directors for the first time. So I'm watching a Senegalese movie called Tuki Buki that I'd never seen, which is great. And um, this movie, I, I understood, you know, but you really do kind of watch this movie, this woman make beds for 10 minutes, and then she makes lamb chops for half an hour. And it's not quite as 
um, what's the name for those, those, uh, gray British movies of the sixties. Uh, you know, it's not just quite as mundane as that, you know, there is, we learn that she's got kind of a, her son's curious about sexuality, but she likes to avoid the topic, but she's also paying for the rent with a weekly, um, client who, uh, she sleeps with. Oh, so it's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, not plotless. It's not Dada, like, I'm going to make a two-hour movie about a woman making beds. But it might as well be for big chunks, you know, because even though you've learned, oh, wow, she's she's paying the rent by sleeping with that guy every Tuesday, then it's like, all right, back to her breading the cutlets, you know. For, in, but there is something hypnotic about watching the drudgery. And, of course, that's the easy feminist angle is like, you know, a, a huge audience and a largely male audience has turned a male gaze on women in many ways, but, like— Never to the, yeah. just the dreariness of making dinner for your ungrateful kid. Yeah, watch us iron the sheets for two hours. Yeah, like what if there, you know, like what if you had to consider the ironing? And, you know, Ackerman made this in the 70s when this kind of thing was a little more revolutionary. Like, you know, consider the free labor here, men. Uh, and, but that's not why. It, and, and the funny thing is when I talked to Mindy about this, she actually... I think it really spoke to her on a much deeper level. Like I was like, Oh, I totally get like why this movie works. And she was like, this is one of the like best movies I've seen in a while, even though it's very slow and three hours long. Um, when just you guys watch movies together, to do you, do you, do you turn up the lights at the end and make out? And, well, I know you're making out through the whole film, but do you, do you discuss or do you discuss the next day over, over breakfast? I feel like it might be like the next time we're like in a car uh-huh. or something, you know? Because you don't want, like, after the movie, you don't want to be like, all right, now let's have a book yeah. club, <laughs> right? Well, I, I filled four pages in my book, my notebook. <laughs> exactly. How many pages did you fill? Here are my takes. Um, so Ackerman has been played at a recent film, you know, a recent film festival, kind of a landmark thing in London, kind of re- did rediscover her whole oeuvre, um, and it's very relevant to the times. And we're living in an era when you can watch a three-hour movie on streaming or video so you could pause it you know like a lot of these long form slow core movies bellatar and stuff did have done much better in recent years given that you don't have to make a day-long commitment to the theater if you want to watch nine hours of showa or 11 hours of berlin alexander plots you know you can you can watch it at home and suddenly it's more accessible but the main reason and, and a bunch of dumb thing pieces were written about you know the wokeism that's pretending that Sure. That this movie has taken over. And it was everywhere on the list, by the way. You know, the, the Claire Denis movie that kind of was a consensus top 100 movie is now in the top 10. And this Iranian, you can almost go through the list and be like, wow, this is new discourse. I bet it's directed by, yep, a woman, you know, or an Iranian guy or a Senegalese guy or, a, uh, you know, you could kind of see, you know, either what were the factors that inflated at this time or maybe what were the factors that have been keeping it down for decades. Right. Uh, Depending on whose tweet thread you're reading, exactly. And and Chantal Ackerman, although a Belgian film director, teaches film at City College of New York. She's not like living in in an, uh, a a um, community in in some arrondissement. She passed away in 2015, but yes, Bel- Belgian born. But um, yeah, was she a New York resident much of her life? She died in Paris. A suicide. I didn't know that. Oh dear. Um, well, I mean, so the, like the depression, you know, the the female lens on depression that's apparent in much of her work, I guess, was autobiographical. Well, and her parents were Holocaust survivors. 
All right. A lot going on there. But the, I mean, the real reason that this movie surpassed Kane or Vertigo or whatever, I think was commented on too little when most of the discourse was like, is the Academy out of, you know, is the critics Academy out of control? The real reason is people are submitting a list of 10 movies and it's going to be public. And there's a sense that when you put together, I was going to ask you this, when you put together these lists, which you apparently hate to do, like, do you make it as a whole or are you like, well, let me just tick down and I'll do one to 10. Or are you like, boy, I don't have a comedy. Uh, no, I think I, it depends on the person. And I think a lot of people that, that, that really take those lists seriously, put them together like an album. Exactly. Where they're like, you, you cannot... It's, it's a mixtape, you're curating. Yeah, you cannot appreciate my number five choice without understanding my number six and number four choices. And it, if you look at these 70s or 80s lists, it's clear that there is definitely, um, ooh, I should have a Japanese director here. Yeah, right. And there is, you know, everybody will put in Seven Samurai or Ugetsu or something. And this is just never extended to like, oh, wait, women direct movies too. Right, and people from other countries, right. including... The country of Africa. And, yeah, exactly. And so suddenly the visibility is, ooh, I do not have a single black director on my list. Right. Um, and it's it's not just that, like... Scan, 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 scan. It's not even... It's not necessarily the performative social justice thing that would be complained about. And it's not even... Um, no, it's re- an, representation uh, matters. It's really more like, I want this to represent the breadth of my taste. Yeah, an earnest attempt to... to do what we're all trying to do, which is open the doors. Yeah. and But it doesn't even have to be an act of activism. It's just more like... If this list is all white men, I don't just watch movies by white men. Like, ooh, I should make sure my list reflects that in some way. But the criticism is that none of these people want their list to reflect poorly on them. Right. Because there's always going to be somebody that's like, I looked at your list. I mean, that could happen, you know. Um, You really have to not, you know, you have to be really not care. You have to be Woody Allen, basically, to be like, nope, this year I'm still submitting rules of the game, wild strawberries, you know. (laughs) Live with it. But there's a way that you could look at any list like that and level any number yeah. of criticisms. All these directors were t- between the ages of 45 and 52, and so this is an ageist list. And there is a um, procedural issue that in, when you try to say, well, I, I'm going to make sure that my list is not all white men this time because, because of the past um, inequities, there's a smaller list to choose from when you come to what are the truly great movies directed by an African director or what are the truly great movies directed by a woman just because they got so few opportunities. And what that means is your list of your, you know, let's say you do, let's say you have your eight white males and then you're um, the two where you're more concerned about representation, your eight white males, you're picking from a universe of tens of thousands of movies, which, you know, disadvantages your Hitchcock's and your Wells's because, you know, you're picking from a big universe. Whereas, if I want to make sure that this list is not all white men, like I've only seen, you know, the West has only seen maybe a dozen African movies, you know, right. how many stone cold classics by women have there really been none. And that's the problem. So it means that you're, when you pick your female director or whatever it is, for, if you're somebody who does that, it just concentrates those votes. So the men are splitting the votes a hundred ways. Your woman is probably going to be, Ackerman, Darren, Claire Denis, you know, it's just a much shorter list. Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw this in the early 90s when well, uh, when Maya Angelou was on every uh, curricula, yeah. uh, you know, every lit curricula where that was new, but it then it gave there, it, it surely gave it, there are other women of color who have written books. 
and there were, you know, yeah. it's not to say that there weren't, but you know, it, you know, it definitely gives the impression of tokenism. If you're, um, you know, if, if the critical discourse just surrounds the single most elite representatives of their, of well, their demographics. That, that was, that's what's been wonderful about watching that evolution where reading lists now are like extraordinarily diverse and, and, you know, yeah. have, have brought forward all these books that, that were, that were there, but were not on the university of Washington freshman reading list 10 or 20 years ago. 20, yeah. 20 or 30 years ago when I was there, when I looked at the, so just, I think yesterday sight and sound expanded their top 100 to their top 250. Like they were planning to have all the, every critic and director's individual list on their website by January. Um, it turned out to be a mammoth undertaking and they're now saying mid March, I think. Do they keep expanding it because they need vertigo to stay on the list? And it's, it's no, the math is not changing, but it's like we announced numbers one through 100, but there's some cool surprises here. Like twin peaks, the return that showtime series is like got enough votes to be a number 145. No, even though it's not a movie by any definition, you know? Wow. Um, and you know, that's just how the numbers worked out. They never say we're going to disqualify short films. We're going to disqualify document. You know, they kind of let people define movies themselves. Um, and so I was going through that list and there's a lot of, because of this inflationary effect on certain identities, you know, the, the African director you've never heard of the black woman you've never heard of, you know, a lot of movies would just appear and I'd be like this Iranian, uh, reclusive poet who made one movie. I have never heard of her. Uh, how am I going to get my hands on this? And it just, I had this amazing flashback to seeing my first sight and sound list in the nineties and just, you know, the doors that open when you see just people talking and arguing enthusiastically, most of, most people didn't have that in their social circles, but you could have, and before the internet, you could have it in this magazine and you'd be like, wow, the critics are talking about this Czech director I've never heard of Finland. There's movies out of Finland now. Wait, so wait, the, the, the new guys in the nineties are Taiwanese and I've never seen any of these. Like it's, it's almost like discovering a new level in a video game or something where you're like, this is going to be hours of adventure. And I really kind of am in favor of this criticism by list, even though it's stupid in so many ways, just because this kind of becomes the venue where so much movie enthusiasm and discovery now happens. Like it's more a magazine poll than any film festival or retrospective or, or conversation anywhere. Yeah, it's it's curious because when I Googled, I, I I started to put in talk about being good at Googling. I I wanted to see where certain movies showed up in the sight and sound poll, and so I put various movie titles, you know, uh, right with sight and sound to see where they came up. And no matter what movie I put in there, the top five results were all is the sight and sound poll too woke? Yeah. And then a hundred Reddit. Uh, like posts that are super long and you realize, Oh, it's a whole universe of people over on Reddit. I mean, absolutely like actually each other to death. And this is not synonymous with the critics poll. Like one thing you see when you send out 2000 ballots to, to critics online and off because print media has died is there's now no difference between the critics poll and just the daily discourse on film, Twitter and, and letterboxd and these other sites. Right. Um, so the, the, it's, it's a parallel universe that we don't live in, but now film nerds and critics all live there full time. And I wonder how long before your list is like reflexively as a director or whatever, your list of films is 
in itself an ironic commentary on on lists, lists list making and, and film and yeah. Oh, you're totally going to have some anti woke maverick oh, doing right. malicious compliance. The same way this guy at UW recently did a ironic land acknowledgement and got yelled at by the faculty. Yeah, he thought he was really funny. He that thought he's being hilarious. Um, yeah, how long till people start doing that? Uh, well, I, for one, welcome our new film critic overlords. If everyone's a film critic, I guess nobody is, but I don't know. I'm, I'm really hoping. I'm, I'm dreaming of that day. 2032 poll. We'll see. And that concludes the Sight and Sound Poll, entry 1158.de0413, certificate number 51403 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram archive everything we've ever thought or said at Omnibus Project, or rather at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. At, 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 at. Just add an at when in doubt. Uh, you can communicate with other futurelings uh, by typing the word futurelings into your computer and see what happens. Um, that's all you need to do to communicate with them. You can then communicate with them just by thinking and singing aloud to yourself in the show. Is that right? They'll know you're there. Uh, you can mail us actual mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And we encourage you to support the production of the show by going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and pledging a uh, nominal amount. It would, by definition, be nominal. Because you could name it. And that's right. And it's also... You can name $120 if you mm-hmm. want to give that you every should. week. You should. You should give us $50,000 to... Not produce the show. Oh, that's true. Should we start taking? Com- should we have a competing Patreon? And if it yeah. to not produce the show, and if it ever exceeds the other one, the yeah. show will end. Fifty thousand dollars a month, and we will quit making Omnibus. Uh, so go to Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project and click om- and enter the promo code Omnibus Project, and then uh, pledge twenty dollars a month, and you will be you get a tote bag on our on our list of favorite people. Is that all you get? Uh, You'll be, we'll make a top 10 list of listeners and we'll read it at the end of every show. Yeah. Top 10 listeners. Top 10 best listeners. It'll we'll change all down. the time. People will be like, oh, I'm not number two again. I hope I'm number one. No, I wasn't. The thing is, we're going to have to prorate it according to your class, race, gender, and productivity. Like the uh, fair you were talking about where Romanians had to pay a certain price for for uh, fry funnel cakes, but uh, Germans had to pay 10 times as much. Yeah, or 100 times as much. That's only fair. You should punish the Germans. They like it. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Will there be a sight and sound poll in 2032? Hard to say. Almost certainly, unless the Pocalypse. We hope and pray that this Pocalypse we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, maybe our final. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>